1: In 1969, a long haired musician named Larry Norman released a record called Upon This Rock. It was released by Capitol Records and was at first a flop, but it eventually found an audience through Christian bookstores. It's considered the first Christian rock album.
0: There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hustle leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know.
1: Hey, Cultivated listeners, we are back. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, we're going to take a look at the profoundly influential and enigmatic life of Larry Norman. My friend, Greg Thornberry, published a biography of Norman this year called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And Greg is here today to talk about Larry's story and to help us see why it matters for us today. Stay with us. Whenever I think about Christian music, I always want to quote Hank Hill, um, (laughs) who has this great quote where he says, uh, Bobby gets involved at a church and starts going to Christian concerts. And Hank Hill says, you're not making Jesus cooler. You're just making rock lamer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so you've gone back to kind of the origins of this whole story. Before we get into Larry Norman's story, I'd, I'd be interested in kind of your own journey with Christian music. Did you grow up with Christian music in the house, Christian rock? No. No.
2: No. As a matter of fact, um, that's part of what led me to Larry Norman to begin with, because in my house, as we talked about in my last interview on cultivated, I grew up in a pretty straight laced, you know, home. My father was a Baptist preacher, pretty conservative, but I would say in terms of culture and religion, There was some dualism in my own household. And so, although we didn't have any sort of contemporary music in my church until right toward the very end of my father's ministry, and even then it was pretty bad, we really didn't have any Christian music at home other than like maybe gospel quartets. My dad did have, you know, some Elvis records, Johnny Cash, Marty Robbins, you know, the the Gunfighter album. I grew up listening to Jerry Reed, you know, and Chet Atkins. So, oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. And so there was really sort of a bifurcation in my household. The only rock I had ever heard was like 1950s stuff. And I had a revelation when I was about 14 years old. I was at the Bucknell University Library with my friend Chucky and I was very intrigued by the Beatles since I was a little kid because Francis Schaeffer talked about them in How Should We Then Live? But, you know, it's like, ooh, Sergeant Peppers was this Eastern mysticism there was no start or end to songs. It was this seamless, you know, kind of stream of consciousness thing. And it was like, you know, Schaefer was criticizing it. Now, since then, we know from Frankie that Francis Schaefer's like showing up to Jefferson Airplane concerts, you know, and passing, you know, the bong around with Frankie, you know, not that he partook. I'm not saying Francis Schaefer right. partook, but right. he, he didn't inhale. But, you know, he was very, <laughs> he liked this stuff a lot more than his public image would have let on. Yeah. But I crept into the library and I, I, in the Bucknell University Library, I pulled out Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the vinyl LP, and put these headphones on. And I was just transported. And so when your very first impression of modern rock is Sgt. Pepper's, you can't go back to Christian music. At that point. I mean, it just doesn't seem like. So I kind of had that attitude all the way coming up through high school and even into college. And then I found myself somewhat ironically in the position of being the radio station manager at Messiah College, which is a Christian liberal arts college. And the format mostly was adult contemporary christian music it was really the only kind of adult contemporary what, what christian- year would that have been um this is uh this is 1990 1990 okay 1991 okay and oh my gosh i just hated this music <laughs> i mean it ran all over me because yeah. you know i was playing music by that point you know i had you know been in a couple of, you know, throwaway bands, I was in a police cover band in college, and I just hated Christian music. And I had to be in the position of promoting some of these concerts they would have on campus, and I have other stories I can tell about that on a future episode. But I just hated it. And one of the disc jockeys who was not a student, he was like a someone that lived in the area. He was kind of a semi-pro radio guy, loved Christian music. And he said, there is something I think you would like. And he went and pulled out a copy of these two Larry Norman records. And like the Beatles, I went into the sound booth and put the needle down. I mean, it was on vinyl. And it was like, holy cow, this is good. So I drove 12 hours to see Larry Norman play at the Icthus Festival in Kentucky. Kentucky. And I was like, this guy's the real deal. So that's how I worked my way into this. And then I found out that Larry Norman protested Christian music just as much as I would have. So he regretted that he ever had anything to do with starting a subgenre.
1: Yeah. You know, when you say that, like one of the things that I've been fascinated with is so I'm, I'm just behind you generationally. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a house that was full of Christian music. My parents were like Gaither fanatics. I say parents, my mother, my dad was the one that had the Sergeant Peppers records and Paul Simon and a bunch of good stuff but my mom was this obsessive Gaither listener, very <laughs> worried about us and what music we would listen to. So my brother was like White Hart, Garmo and Key, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, all of this kind of stuff. You know, to look back on it, I think I had a similar experience to you, which is the first records I remember really listening to were my dad's Beatles records. Right. And if you're listening to Rubber Soul and Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's and all of those, and somebody says, hey, you should really listen to this White Hart <laughs> record. It's a hard move to make. At the same time, The 90s were weird for Christian music because there was this Christian indie scene. Yes. And it was people like Steve Hindelong and... The 77s. The 77s and Gene Eugene and kind of that whole production world. And you listen to those guys talk and every single one of those guys would say, well, Larry Norman, Larry Norman. Like they were the Larry Norman fanatics. Right. And they created this whole... Place where there was kind of a place for art, the choir. There was artful Christian music that existed at the periphery, right? And then like Tooth and Nail records happened, and Five right. Minute Walk, and there was all this cool indie stuff that happened. And then one day somebody just clicked off the faucet and it went away. <laughs> yeah, because there's nothing like I don't I can't think of anything that's necessarily like that now. But I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Like to some extent, that was the legacy of Larry Norman, that there was this almost sort of protesting mm-hmm. peripheral. Christian stuff that survived and that continued to thrive in his wake?
2: Well, I do think that, I mean, for one thing, just to underscore what you're saying, when you listen to Larry Norman's 1973 album, Only Visiting This Planet, it was entered into the National Registry by the Library of Congress in 2014. It sounds every bit as good as anything from the period. It was produced by Triumvirate. George Martin picked the producers out for Larry's Only Visiting This Planet record and the follow-up So Long Ago, The Garden. There are several albums there that you would have been proud. And people say this. You could play this record to your friend who listened to secular music, and they would say, this is hot. As a matter of fact, Charles Norman, Larry's brother, is friends with Isaac Brock from Modest Mouths. And he sent a copy of Larry's you know, like kind of greatest hits vinyl, because Isaac Brock is a, a vinyl fanatic. And he listened to this record, and, you know, I was there when Isaac Brock called, and he said, "'Hey, Charles, I, j- I just actually listened to your brother's record.'" And he said, "I don't know about all the Jesus stuff, but your brother was a shit hot songwriter." <laughs> and uh, so there was kind of like the ultimate. There's the legacy.
1: Yeah,
2: that's the legacy. Yeah, that people that are top in their field recognize it. The real legacy is Bono. I mean, it was you know Bono and Larry Mullen Jr. are listening to Larry Norman and the other band you failed to mention, who is definitely a part of the. Larry Norman legacy although controversially is Daniel Amos. You know, there's a 1981 photo of Larry Mullen Jr. band photo for U2 and he's got his DA button. You know, on. so that's that's the legacy. It's it's more the the Bonos, the Danielson family band Sufjan Steve that to me is more the legacy. But yes, there were those bands that were sort of Christian alternative music that could at least look to someone like Larry Norman as permission to be outside the box and coloring outside the lines and not playing the game of the Christian music industry, which was authoritarian and autocratic
1: and lame as could be. I guess the way I see it in my head, too, is, you know, and we should get into the story so so that this makes even more sense, but he had this prophetic edge that always pushed against Christian culture and... In a sense, you can look at Christian music culture and go, eventually, those guys did push their way out. Like the ones that are really good, the Christian musicians that we look at today and going, they're doing artful stuff, whether it's Sufjan or I would point to like Dustin Kinsru and Thrice, you know, they did go outside right. because inside the authoritarians won to right. some extent or another. Right, exactly. Which they tend to do. Yeah.
0: Shipping <laughs> whiskey from a paper cup. You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up, and take a look at what you've done to yourself. Why don't you? You put the bottle back on the shelf. Yellow finger from your cigarettes, your hands are shaking while your body sweats. Why don't
2: Larry Norman was born in 1947, so he's the classic sort of baby boomer story. He grew up in San Francisco in a household of, you know, his father was a Bible college graduate, but worked for the railroad and then became a school teacher. His parents were very straight laced and they definitely did not want him to be Elvis Presley. And that's part of the legacy. He had a guitar when he was a kid, but he wasn't allowed to play it. Hmm. And so hmm. he would finger the guitar. And learn the chords without strumming it so it wouldn't upset his father. So he would memorize all the chord patterns in his head, you know. And then eventually they couldn't stop it. And he, at 19, 18, 19 years old, joined a band called People which was a sort of a theater rock combo that's what it became and they were one of the sort of up and coming San Francisco area bands as a matter of fact they played at the Human Being in 1967 the famous concert that had Santana and Allen Ginsberg and all of the big Janis Joplin.
1: Mary Pranksters, was that all tied in? (laughs) All of that,
2: all those Jefferson Airplane, all those bands. People certainly weren't that popular, but they were definitely in that scene, and Larry Norman was not the founder of that band, but they brought him in as the principal songwriter and lead singer. They had a hit in 1968 and it a prosaic title, "I love you," but it was a cover of a zombie song. Mm. And it was number fourteen on Billboard. It sold more copies than a lot of records that go to number one do because mm. back then it was just about airplay. Yeah. And it went number one in other places, Japan, Israel, mm. you know, different places around the world. And so people was a thing, and they were on Capitol Records. Larry Norman ran afoul of the other members of the band as he was wont to run afoul of virtually anybody that he worked with over a long period of time. They had one of the first, it really was the first rock opera called Mm. The Epic. As a matter of fact, they were touring with The Who before Tommy was ever written. And there's some suggestion that Pete Towns was like, well, this is an interesting genre. <laughs> but Larry Norman fell through a crack. The, the stage separated. He fell through the floor. It smashed his finger. He got up, blood spurting all over the place, and he quit the band the next day. He felt like the Holy Spirit was telling him, it's time to stop. The other boys in the band were becoming Scientologists. So he was a believer already. He was a believer, but he claims that that was a galvanizing moment for him. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people deny that he was even thinking about doing Christian music, but he was writing Christian songs, but he mm. was trying to make it in the record industry. And there was right. no such thing as Jesus rock, right. but it was at that point that he decided I'm going to dedicate my life to ministry somehow." Hmm. He followed up and got a job at Capitol Records for the Beachwood Music Group to write a rock musical called Allison with Herb Hendler, Hmm. who was a famous producer, produced many famous artists like uh, the Everly Brothers and, and other people. And it was the juxtaposition of working at Capitol Records during the day, trying to write hits for other people. He wrote a song for Laughing called Blow In My Ear and I'll Follow You Anywhere. (laughs) The juxtaposition of that, and then leaving the Capitol Records building and going to the corner of Hollywood and Vine and preaching the gospel to transvestites and people in the gay scene and trying to explain Jesus to them, that he found that, if he wrote these songs and played them, people would pay attention hmm. to the preaching. And Jesus Rock was born.
1: You know, you said he ran afoul of everyone he worked with. He ran afoul of his audiences oftentimes. Like he was kind of an edgy, hostile performer. Yeah, this is the way my book begins, actually, is
2: that Larry Norman did not think that his job was to entertain people. He wanted people to think He wanted people to second-guess themselves. So if they were just coming to a concert and clapping and turning their brains off, that was the worst possible outcome for them. So he developed all these devices to make people feel uncomfortable at a Larry Norman concert. And so people considered him a very arrogant performer because he was so aloof. I mean, he he would walk out on stage at the Royal Albert Hall in 1973, carrying his guitar case (laughs) and taking about four minutes to a sold out audience, (laughs) opening up his case and taking out his guitar and kind of, you know, I mean, who does that? He was combative like Bob Dylan, with the press. He was combative with his audiences. And uh, it was a part of his way of saying there's something more here than being edified, which that's what Christian music became. Mm -hmm. And that's what Christian music is now. It's essentially just praise music. There's not anything
1: like Christian rock anymore, almost. Yeah. So what is he doing that you see in his work that doesn't exist in (laughs) this?
2: You know, he was sort of Tim Keller before Tim Keller Hmm. was cool. You know, I think the genius of Tim Keller is that it's sort of the gospel version of psychotherapy. Hmm. You come in to a service where Tim Keller's preaching and he's sort of walking you through this mindset of a secular person And throughout the whole thing, he's sort of setting these little grenades that are going to go off later. (laughs) And then by the time you're done listening to it, you're like, wow, I need to rethink the way I'm living my life. And that's what Larry Norman was trying to do. He was trying to get people to open up and follow Jesus and make that a separate thing than church or following a clergy member or understanding theology. So that's what he was trying to do was combine art with these sorts of subversive gospel-oriented messages sometimes, but then other times he was just, you know, doing something very metaphorical, which got him into a lot of trouble with Christian audiences.
1: Where did the transition come from him playing Will Albert Hall to playing churches? You know, yeah. when does he when does he become a Christian artist?
2: Well, it uh, all is kind of mixed up together because when he left people, there was no Christian music scene. He was the Christian music scene, but there was the beginnings of the Jesus movement. And a lot of people have heard of the Jesus movement, but they don't realize that Larry Norman, along with Arthur Blessett and Don Williams at the Salt Company and all these other people were really the folks that started this, Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. But one reporter once asked Larry, didn't you start the Jesus Movement? And you know, his answer was always, no, Jesus started the Jesus Movement. And they said, well, I heard the Jesus Movement started in your living room. And Larry would say, well, if it did, I wasn't there when it happened. Uh, But he was was one of the principal, you know, ringleaders of the Hmm. Jesus Movement. So he was playing at coffee houses at the Salt Company, which was a ministry of Hollywood Presbyterian Church. So he was doing that after he left people. But then here's the thing that was different from Larry than other artists like, you know, Switchfoot that sort of start off principally Christian, then they get mainstream record deals. Capitol Records and then subsequently MGM Records and then subsequently ABC Records this series of secular music companies gave him record deals because they thought he had talent. They were bothered by the fact that he kept singing about religion, but he, I mean, you you think about that today. To get one record deal is major, but to get three or four in a row without huge record sales, you know, that's a pretty significant achievement. So, In 1969, he completed a record called Upon This Rock, which is called the Sgt. Peppers of Christian Rock. And it's sort of a Christian psychedelic album. And that's what started it all. And that was on Capitol Records. But the problem was, when someone went to Sam Goody, they're not looking for Christian music. And Christians only went to Bible bookstores, so nobody knew how to find the record, you know. So, yeah.
1: Yeah and so the the music industry gets born as somebody's trying to solve that problem like the Christian music industry.
2: Yeah, it was figuring out the distribution issue. Yeah. Because, you know, in 1972, Larry plays Explo 72 at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas with Billy Graham and Bill Bright. Mm. It's their response to the Jesus movement and they have Johnny Cash mm. and Chris Christopherson and Larry Norman and Rita Coolidge and Andre Crouch playing to this you know huge audience hmm. there's 100,000 kids there and all of a sudden the record labels are like there's got to be some money to be made in this <laughs> and then Time magazine does a cover story on the Jesus revolution and Life magazine does a cover story and then you know you're off to the races people think it's commercial
0: Alice is a drag queen boys somewhere in between other bands are looking
2: was this sort of leader of the Jesus movement. And then in 1973 at the Royal Albert Hall, he says, I'm retiring from Christian music. Sort of like Bowie six months later said, I'm not doing Ziggy Stardust anymore. Six months before that, Larry Norman said, I don't want to be perceived as making money off of Jesus. And so his second album for MGM called So Long Ago The Garden was all of the Christian messages were very metaphorical. There were no Overt references to Jesus on the record. It was clearly a Christian record, but it was just very, very subtle. And on the cover of that record, Larry Norman is nude down to his nether regions with a lion superimposed on his chest. And people began saying, This guy's become a Satanist. Uh, he's left the faith. He's backslidden. <laughs> And it was complicated by the fact that Larry's first wife, Pam, appeared on some covers of some porn magazines. So then the story became Larry is in porn films. And so there was back in a pre-internet era where you couldn't fact check things, these rumors spread around that he was this bad seed. And then he would come to concerts and he would be combative These stories, you know, the rumor mill gets going, and uh, so there's that. Then at the end of his life, his life ends on a mystery, which we talk about in the book, and there was even this documentary done called Fallen Angel, the outlaw Larry Norman, which says that Larry Norman was like basically a fraud and a sexual predator and he'd had this child out of wedlock that he never acknowledged. So there's sort of that towards the end of his life, that controversy came up. So there's a lot of controversy. The other thing is that some of his former associates, he started this record label and brought in artists like he discovered basically Randy Stonehill, Mark Hurd, He produced Mark Hurd's first record. He produced one of Daniel Amos's early critical records. With the exception of Mark Hurd, who he stayed best friends with to the end of his Mark Hurd's life, all these people said, you know, Larry cheated us out of royalties. You know, he made promises he didn't
1: keep, et cetera, et cetera. He seems to have been someone with this immense amount of charisma, you know? Yes. Which comes with a shadow side and and a positive side. You and I
2: both know people that when we get together with a social gathering, if the people in common know this one other person, you wind up spending the whole evening talking about <laughs> that person, Right. that was Larry Norman. If you knew Larry Norman and you got together with any, even if he wasn't there, you wound up telling Larry Norman stories. And you know, there are those galvanizing people like that where he got into people's mental framework and they could not let it go. And one way I see that is I all the fan correspondence. man, some of it's really freaky. But he got into people's mental furniture and started it rearranging. You know, for a Christian artist, it was, you know, people poured out their whole lives to him in these letters, their suicide attempts, their marital situations, their, you know, Women would leave lockets of their hair. They would prepare these little packages of – some of it is really creepy. He had stalkers, you know. People were obsessed with him. And the thing, most important thing I want to say is that he generated that. He built that himself. He mythologized himself he thought about that going in. So he would have cryptic references in his liner notes. He would have sort of a numerology type bit that he would do and always left the impression that there's something deeper, and more profound going on here than maybe was really even going on. So I think he generated that a lot himself, but he was just a very, very charismatic
1: guy. As I've looked at the story and as I've reflected on who he is and he seems to sort of embody this tension that i think is inherent to christian culture it's a problem for pastors it's a problem for any christians of influence which is because you're good at something and because you're a christian people think you're a good christian too right <laughs> so here he is this incredibly talented and incredibly charismatic presence and the reaction from you know the reaction from outsiders is to mythologize him you know, as much as he might be cultivating that, like there's lots of people who would love to sort of cultivate cult-like followings. He had the talent to attract that kind of stuff. And then again, I think there's something about Christian culture that wants to project onto anybody with talent and with a platform, these kind of idealized expectations. And so that's what makes the dark side of his life feel so jarring. We're not prepared for that. Right. Why is that tension so intense?
2: I think that, Part of it is the fantasy that somebody who believes the same things that you believe secretly gets away with whatever the heck he wants to do. (laughs) I think that's a big part of the appeal, to be honest. So while at the same time there's sort of this self-righteous indignation about, you know, throughout his whole career, Mm -hmm. whether it was legitimate or totally legitimate criticisms of Larry Norman, I think deep down, people are like, how come he gets away with it and nobody else does?
1: Hmm. That leads to the angry reactions.
2: That leads to the angry reactions, but it also sort of keeps the... Think about this. How many artists do you know that never had a hugely successful career in terms of sales? I mean, Larry had one record in his whole career that went gold, Mm -hmm. okay? But that spent an entire four decades... Anytime he did a concert, he he could basically sell out. All Mm. the way up until the very end. He maintained this interest all the way until the very end. Mm. Very, very few Christian artists can pull that off. I can think of one. I think that for that reason, there was this also generated continual interest. In a way, the fact that there was the sin factor in it created this sort of odd element of attraction Mm -hmm. that – goody-two-shoe Christians felt like they were almost sinning by listening to a Larry Norman record. And, of course, that in the preface of the book, I describe how John Darnielle's first novel, Mm -hmm. the title Wolf in White Van, is a Larry Norman reference.
1: Yeah, it's almost like it's an acceptable sin, right? This guy gives us a permission to dip our toes in places that that otherwise we would moralize ourselves out of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd love to hear... What's a classic Larry Norman story that epitomizes kind of who he was or some of the mythology?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the most interesting things about the book since I had access to this archive is Mm -hmm. that there's something prurient about it. Mm. I mean, I felt like a little icky because I had total access to everything that happened in his personal life where most biographers never have that chance. And so, it, 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 uh, it, at times, I was like, am, am I transgressing a line by even reading this? Because some of it's very, very raw. Some of the behind-the-scenes things that happened never were known in public. Mm. And so, for example, Larry's relationship with his wife, Pam. There's one scene in their mutual diaries where Pam was a model, and she was invited to parties at the Playboy Mansion with Hugh Hefner. And at one point, she was friends with girls who were Playboy Playmates. And you remember, this is the father of Christian Rock. right? And Hugh Hefner offers Pam the opportunity to be not only Playmate of the Month, but to be featured in The Most Beautiful Girl in mm. the World, Issue. Also, part of the mystique of Larry is that he marries this like blonde bombshell.
1: Yeah,
2: it's not a very Christian <laughs> image. It's not the safe, right? You know, right. Christian uh, school marm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, and they just they looked so photogenic together. But Pam comes to to Larry and says, and kind of naively, "Well, should I do this?" Because it pays $50,000 mm. and a normal Playmate only gets $12,000. And Larry hugs her and says, you know, you're my centerfold and all that that's all that matters. To which Pam responds, well, you know, it's hard to turn down Hugh Hefner because Playboy is the Rolls Royce of men's girly magazines. So it's sort of this weird mm. juxtaposition of things that aren't supposed to be going together, mm-hmm. Christianity and the the world that are a part of that legacy. You know, the Bible study that Larry Norman started called The Vineyard, which actually eventually became, the genetic history is that became The Vineyard denomination. I had no idea. He started this Bible study with Pam that became run by a man named Ken Gullickson, who was at Calvary Chapel. Then when it sort of got too big for Larry Norman's living room, it became its own church. And then John Wimber succeeded Ken Gullickson as the pastor. So there's just, there's another, but they had a fundraiser for the vineyard at the Daisy Club in Los Angeles. I mean, the Daisy Club is the most notorious club in L.A. I mean, this is mm. where the Jackson 5 got their start. This is where, you know, Frank Sinatra was first seen with Mia Farrow. This was like the in place. They had their fundraiser at the Daisy, and Martin Sheen was the host. <laughs> you know, because Martin Sheen was a big Larry Norman fan. John yeah. Mellencamp is a big Larry Norman fan. So, it's just like this fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And I think it raises the question in people's minds, maybe I can have the world and Jesus too. Hmm. And I think that is still the fantasy that a lot of people have, and we're still trying to work that question out.
1: I mean, I think part of the value of a biography like this is that it it unpacks the mythology, but it demythologizes it as well. Pam being asked to pose in Playboy, it's like you've, you've got these people who, people are looking at them as icons, and yet, For her, like not necessarily even having the moral categories to navigate whether or not this is a good idea.
2: Yeah. And just like maybe a year before, maybe a couple years before, she's on the cover of Decision Magazine giving her testimony.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Have those two mounted on the wall next to each other.
2: (laughs) Actually, for those of you that are listening that don't know what that is, Decision Magazine was Billy Graham's signature publication. (laughs)
1: That's, That's amazing.
0: I want the people to know that he saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance. I say I feel so good, I gotta get up and dance. I know what's right, I know what's wrong, I don't confuse it. All I'm really trying to say is why should the devil have all the good music? What I
1: see in it that's so interesting, like, that I can't get over when I look at his story, is he, he goes from mainstream to Christian. He creates this world, and then he kind of loathes the world that he created right. for much of the rest of his life. Yeah. What does it say to us as evangelical Christians, like, about culture making? Yeah. You know, the, the dangers of culture making.
2: Yeah, it, that's a fascinating part of it. I mean, it is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Hmm. He wanted to create this artist colony where other people who were very, very talented he was really the one that discovered Steve Camp, you know, and Scott Wesley Brown. These were all people that he were producing, but then they bolted when they got hmm. you know, he, he when had it close to him. Yeah, yeah yeah. Then they went to other record labels before Larry got to produce them because he had this rule that you had to be in camp, hmm. music camp for a year where you learned how to write a good song and recording techniques and, and so forth. So he birthed this dream and what he found, and this is so important, is never help anybody out with their dream because when it doesn't happen for them, all these artists that he sort of inspired and brought up, when it doesn't happen for them, you know, all these artists that Larry is producing, they wanted secular record deals.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Randy Stonehill, Daniel Amos, they wanted it so bad. Never happened for them. Mm. So the lesson is never help someone out with their dream, because if it doesn't happen for them, you become the living embodiment of the fact that dreams don't come true. Mm. And that's a huge millstone to have around your neck. And Larry Norman lived with that millstone for decades. Part of it was narcissistic too. Sure. Because he would toward the end of his career he would talk about all the different subgenres of Christian music and he would <clears> say, I kinda liked it better when I was the only one.
1: <laughs> okay, so so I'm gonna follow up with this. We talked about this some on the the last interview, but like you, you have a knack for helping people pursue their dreams. So do you believe that? Never, never help someone follow their dreams?
2: I will tell you what I've learned from Larry Norman. Yeah. And I have my own episodes where some of my own kind of, you know, acolytes have bitten back. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from it is that you take it up to a point and then you set them free. And you don't get people's hopes up too high, because I have myself gotten bitten by that. Like, you promised me that if I did these things, I'm like, I never promised you a rose garden, (laughs) but I beg your pardon. But what you have to do, and this is what we talked about last time, is you have to juxtapose raising people's sights, letting them see what is truly possible, but saying... You're only going to be able to do it if you can compete with the best.
1: Yeah.
2: And this is a big problem that Christians have because we accept mediocrity as greatness. Yeah. And we call people geniuses who are not geniuses, that thing. And it does a lot of damage. And it creates these mega personalities that crash yeah. all of the time. And it's definitely a cautionary tale for sure.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're right. There's this. When you have a subculture, it's an insulated world where me, the mediocre does rise to the top because you're fishing in a smaller pool. And, and when you marry that with the, the sort of moral uh, cloud that hangs over evangelicalism, the moralistic cloud that hangs over evangelicalism, then whoever rises to the top— we we project, you know, we have the idealistic project projections that we put onto them. So they're not only this super talent, which which in the grand scheme of things isn't a super talent. They're also a super Christian, which in the grand scheme of things that's an idealized, that's a dream, that's not that's not reality. Um so again, that's, I think it's one of the things about telling Larry's story that's so helpful is because he was a guy who who got those kinds of projections on him mm-hmm. and the real story is something that's much grittier. I think of Larry Norman in a similar vein to the way I think of somebody like a Brendan Manning, who's this tragic-slash-heroic figure, mm-hmm. and at the, end of, at the end of Brendan Manning's life, he's still hanging on and saying, you know, grace abounds, you know, even through the, the deep throes of his own alcoholism and, and failure and the fact that he died kind of alone because he'd burned so many bridges. Mm-hmm. I wonder with a guy like, with Larry Norman's story, can you look at that story and walk away from it and go, there's still there's still an abundance of grace, evidence of grace in his story.
2: Larry's story started off with this sort of juxtaposition against particularly his father hmm. who didn't want him in the music industry. And yes, a lot of Larry's business associates and proteges left him and, you know, disparaged him, you know, even after he died. But the great story is is that because that happened Larry was reunited with his family. Mm. So his father wound up coming back and working with him at his record label that he produced. And he got very close to his brother, Charles, and his sister. And when Larry died, he was surrounded by family Mm. that he had sort of, you know, in his golden age period, when he was at the zenith of his popularity, you know... He didn't maybe have as much contact with them, but towards the end, they're all around the the corners of his bed, along with Black Francis from The Pixies, which I think is very cool. (laughs) And uh, I think that despite all of that, unlike Brendan Manning, he was actually rediscovered that blood is thicker than water.
0: First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to
1: know. That's our show. Go get Greg's book. It's called, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And it's available wherever books are sold. There are so many more wild stories in there. It's fascinating. It's thought provoking and Greg's a great writer. Stay tuned. We actually have one more little bonus anecdote from Greg that he threw in after we stopped rolling tape and we wanted to add back in. Also, Cultivated listeners might be interested in my new book. It's about faith and culture, and it's called Faith Among the Faithless. You can learn more about it at faithamongthefaithless.com, and it's also available wherever books are sold. Cultivated is a production of Harbor Media and the Narrativo Group. We make podcasts at the Narrativo Group, and you can learn more about us at narrativogroup.com. This episode was produced and mixed by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. Our music today was by Larry Norman, and our theme song is by the fine folks at Roman Candle. We'll be back next week. But in the meanwhile, you have more anecdote. Here's my anecdote. And I,
2: I will not I'm sure this will not come up in any other interview on this book, but I bring it up because uh, it's Mike Cosper. Uh and because I don't know, your, know what
1: that means. And because of your history. I'm bracing myself.
2: I do have in the book a Larry Norman Mark Driscoll crossover. I'm excited about this. Okay. So um when this, uh, at that time, young man, who later on went on to produce this film, attack film on Larry Norman, The Fallen Angel, he did a previous film on uh, another Jesus Movement figure named Lonnie Frisbee, mm-hmm. who uh, this filmmaker said Lonnie Frisbee was, was gay. Uh, he evidently was. And it's sort of his story. Really a kind of a, an amazing film. Um, but the soundtrack was... Larry Norman's songs and Larry knew about it, but then sort of changed his mind. He gave a lot of different reasons because EMI Capital owned right. the rights. And he said that was the reason, but you know, who knows what the real reason was. Anyway, one of the premieres of this Lonnie Frisbee film was at an early Mars Hill church. And Larry Norman showed up at the premiere to see if his songs were still in the film after he asked. Them not to be in the film. And Larry Norman created a little bit of a ruckus uh, in the Q&A after the film. And uh, Mark Driscoll wrote a blog afterwards uh, that was titled something like, why are we still spending so much time paying attention to these effeminate long-haired Jesus freaks? Wow and there's your Mark Driscoll story.
1: There's the Mark Driscoll moment. (laughs) You know there had to be one. (laughs) You know know what? It it, it actually takes me very much by surprise, but but there's nothing surprising about it. There you go. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Greg, for being here. Thank you, Mike.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your
2: podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.